Welcome back, friends, fellow philosophers, and authors to this Wild Isle writing cast. I have with me the evil, the dark, the hateful Nathaniel Cumberledge. <laughs> uh, glad to be back again. And this time for about something that's actually somewhat writing-related. Usually I'm here for something goofy. <laughs> Well, maybe it'll get goofy. Uh, but yeah, I'm actually really excited to do this series of podcasts. We had just done one on genre um, titled, furthermore, uh, genre must be destroyed, uh, which it turned out that genre didn't necessarily need to be destroyed. I think I might have maybe tapped into the essence of what genre ought to be and how that word ought to be used in a useful way. But that's not what we're here to talk about. We're here to talk about uh, plot in this episode titled The Mo uh, Road Most Followed. Uh, but before we begin, I'm going to shill a few things. Uh, first of all, I want to shill my fiction. For those of you who do not know, I have a book out, Wan Smoke Broken. It's a kind of a weird fantasy fiction with an American twist, uh, lots of muzzle-loading gun action combined with weird occult magic. So you can check that out. It's available on Amazon. You can find it on my website, wildislelit.com. And while you're there, you can check out my editing services. If you are an author and you want to, uh, let's say, refine your skill and ability, I've started offering the Wild Isle Style Guide services. It comes in three packages, Denizenship, Discipleship, um, and the Wild Isle Master Class. Uh, the focus here is on style and stylistic elements, such as you might see particularly in older novels all the way up to modernity, so we don't all sound like redundant, minimalist, pretentious. Uh, pseudo authors out there as you might otherwise sound. And if you go all the way for the master class, I will help you embed your manuscript in with symbolism so that you can articulate a very deep and meaningful theme. Um, lastly, before we're done shilling here, if you want to uh, join this podcast, you have an opportunity to. If I know you or know of you or know of someone who know, you know, we have a common uh you know, common person, uh, so we can I could actually know who you are. You can participate, or if you're just in the comments, let me know if there's a subject that you want to cover. Um, subjects that we have not yet covered include our novel, novels, novel, originality, inspiration, homage, and derivation, delving into the depths, which is theme as thesis. The author spake upon the face of the water, setting as world-building backdrop in character. Uh, human, after all, compelling characters, established faces, archetypes, and self-inserts. Uh, narrative voice, potence or pretense. Uh, regression to the mean, rules of writing, bell curves, and Pareto distributions. Art versus escapism, narratives as nourishment or decadence. Spirit channeling, storytelling via various mediums. When is the weave always wrong? Discussing narrative devices present or absent in anime and manga, which harm a new author's stories. And uh, we have a new topic on the list just to show that you can actually add something if you want to, the nature of villainy. Uh, what makes a villain and why do people choose evil? All right, I'm done shilling. Anything you want to throw out there, Nate? I'm really excited for uh, the, the villainy one. That sounds like a very, very, very neat episode. Yeah, that was actually, um, it was recommended by uh, Brad, who featured on the previous episode before this one. Uh, and I actually, I really liked it. He had me listen to like a whole 40-minute video by Stefan Molyneux related to the question, uh, which I hadn't listened to Stefan in a very long time. Uh, but it was interesting, and I think it'll make for a an actual 
you know, great discussion because um, that's gone back and forth throughout the ages as to what really makes a proper villain or what is a villain and why does that villain make those choices that can that can get pretty deep. But for today, we're going to talk about plot, uh, particularly plot planning, improv structure, and subversion. Those are the subtitles. So uh, before I begin rattling on, as I am wont to do, uh, I, I want to know your thoughts, Nate, on what you think plot is in relation to what a story is in relation to narrative, because I believe those are pretty tightly linked concepts of plot, story, narrative. What are these things? What are they to you? How do you relate them? Plot is generally, of course, the is the most mechanical aspect of all those things, I think. It is the general sequence of events, what the meat of a story is about. Oh, well, I wouldn't say, well... It's not necessarily what the story is about. That's more like theme and narrative sort of stuff. But uh, it's what is happening and everything else that is gleamed from what is happening between all of your characters and events and everything like that. So uh, what gives that like plot is usually the most uh, boring part of story planning in a sense, because like even though exciting things can be happening, like the most exciting thing in the world can be put on paper, but if it has no uh, spirit or animus moving it, it kind of, it, it's just like writing, it's like writing dragon on a piece of paper and then crumpling it up and throwing away and saying you destroyed a dragon, right? <laughs> yeah, so two, so, two things. Um, one is that your, your description of plot matches pretty perfectly with the standard definitions I found. So I've got like a storyline, the plan, scheme, main story of a literary or dramatic work, uh, the sequence of events in which each event affects the next one through the principle of cause and effect, right? So that's the sequence of scenes. Um, but you mentioned it being dry and boring, um, and or rather the potential of plot by itself being rather uh unanimated, that it needs to have a spirit put into it. Um, I, I wonder if you haven't experienced this, though, in opposition to that. I don't disagree with you about what you said. Uh, I do think that a, you know, you can take the most exciting idea and then put it into a poorly devised plot and make it into the least interesting thing possible. I think that's absolutely true. And I've seen that happen. I've seen that happen a lot. Um, but I also find that plot is where people often get stuck. I think we'll end up talking about this more when we get into outlining. But plot is where a lot of very new authors who have, you know, they have the big idea, they get really excited about it, and they start thinking about plot and thinking about plot and thinking about plot, and then they they aren't able to find that spirit. Have you encountered that before? Absolutely, and that's going to be something we talk about in outlining. Um, uh, I'll hold off on that for now. But, uh, and I want to say that there are exceptions to plot being the most boring component. There are authors who are masterful plotters, right? So, like, people who tend to write murder mysteries, those are very plot-heavy. People like uh, Agatha Christie and stuff, it's like, there are characters, 
but they're all in this web of constructed events that are like unfolding backwards so that you can figure out the, the machinations and motivations of the various characters so that you can follow the plot threads and predict yourself who the antagonist really is and stuff like that. So like that stuff is the exception, but I'm, but uh, like main, if you look at various works, right, it's like uh, most most popular fiction tends to be fairly character-driven with pretty standard plot. Uh, yeah, I, I, just... I, I... Yeah, go ahead. Sorry. Okay, so uh, I see that often. That's true in my own work where my my plots, I don't even, th we'll, we'll get into that with the absence of outlining, but to, to put it in short here, I don't even think very much about the plot. I just let the plot happen. Uh, and I drive it through the motivations of individual characters, uh, which can drive you right off a bridge into the river if you're not careful. Um, but I, I got, I had came up with this definition right before we actually started recording um, that I think captures the idea of the spirit, right? Uh, that you mentioned that needs to be there. That would say uh, mystery, usually what are referred to as mystery novels or detective novels or noir are, are typically, or those that strongly borrow from those influences, very, very strongly uh, impart into their works uh, or, or the work imparts into itself. I don't know how to say that properly, but my definition was that plot is the facilitative structure that produces a theme which we'll set aside what theme exactly is here in a second. Uh, basically, it's a thesis of the work, but we'll set it aside. So it's a facilitative structure, produces a theme, uh, and it communicates that theme or thesis by combining pathos and logos properly, right? And the pathos section of that seems to um, relate to the spirit that you've mentioned before. Uh, and my interest before moving on is the, the question is what really is that spirit? What is the pathos? What do you think? Um, I think the, the pathos has to do with uh, a combination of um, character and theme kind of stuff most of the time. So like if your story isn't like th this is, this might be a controversial thing, but if your story isn't about anything, it's going to be hard to animate it to be interesting. So, like, the reason I say that's controversial today is that you often hear the take that all art is political or something, and people have an instant duh, reaction against that because of the politicization of entertainment. And that's not necessarily what I mean, because, like, um, just because something is about something more than just raw entertainment... Uh, which most good entertainment is. It's just, it's like, it's something that the author thinks is interesting or cares about as a question inserted into the, like, a disc, like, a quarrel between the characters. The characters are often representative of ideas, and they're in this arena, and the plot is the mechanism of them in their interactions and such. Yeah, I find that um, very frequently. That that's that's typically when the the work is character driven. Specifically, um, that seems to be well when it's done well. I've seen it done poorly. So let's say if it's done well, um, uh, you know, what? I'm going to hold off. The reason I'm going to hold off, we'll talk about that later because I'm going to when we get to outlining down down the way. Uh, but you mentioned theme and you mentioned character providing the pathos. Um, 
that makes me think of this uh, idea of tension. And I, I, if you know, if you know me from somewhere else on the internet, and you've seen me talk about writing in text form, you will have seen me say these things uh, before. So I apologize, but it's very important for anyone who doesn't hasn't heard them knows them. Essentially, with plot, uh, we are playing a game with tension. And why does tension matter? Because tension is uh, the feeling you feel when you care about something, which I usually call reader buy-in, right? And for a reader to buy into something, um, they need tension, which means something needs to be at stake, right? Because if there's nothing at stake, then there's no nothing to be tense about, which means there's no reason to care. And uh, I think that pathos is deeply wrapped up into the plot providing that to the characters. Uh, and then the theme is on the other end of that. So imagine you have the characters on one side, the theme or the meaning, what the, what the work is about in like kind of pretentious artistic sense, right? Put that on the other end. And in the middle is the plot, the plot which is the, uh, I hate this word literary device, but I'm going to use it right now for lack of a better term. The plot is, you could think of it, the literary devices used to put something at stake uh, to provide tension so that the reader can buy into what's happening and then they can feel something about what the work is about and the characters involved. Uh, does that all seem right to you or am I am I off the board somewhere? No, I, I, I can see that 100%. Um, sorry, I didn't think of yeah. uh, anything particularly to add to that. I just think I, I'm in general agreement with that assessment. Okay, well, then I can move on because where um, where I got that idea uh, is essentially a combination of just um, learning, practicing writing, then going to grad school and then teaching uh, literature courses um, and really thinking about uh, what's you know called Freytag's Pyramid or Freytag's Triangle, which I'm sure everyone's familiar with. Um, it's the you know triangle that has exposition, rising action, climax, falling action, falling action and resolution. And I think actually that that surprisingly, because most of the time when I go and read uh, literary analysis from like textbooks, no matter how many textbooks I look at, it's it's just trite that has been parroted for a couple centuries and no one has paid attention to it. And then like in the last podcast, it turns out, oh, wait a minute, Aristotle got it right 2000 years ago. Everyone <laughs> fucking forgot what he said and then just made up some other bullshit and then ran with it for forever. Um, but I think Freytag's triangle is kind of correct, right? So even if you have like an in medias res story uh, where it starts in the midst of things, um, sometimes people think that cuts off the exposition. That doesn't actually cut off the exposition. It just makes it really short and compact and, and intermixed with some of the early complications of the conflict. But fundamentally, if you cut off the exposition entirely, you wouldn't know what the fuck was going on. So I don't buy into the, the, the idea that the exposition just isn't there. Uh, but yeah, so um, the exposition, that kind of fits in with what I was talking about earlier with the characters, uh, rising action climax, uh, that is the things being at stake, whereas post-climax, um, anything that was at stake, what's going to happen to it has already been decided because that's what makes the climax, the climactic moment. And then the resolution is the the after effect, which shows fundamentally uh, 
the theme or which, because uh, sometimes you have very complex work, you have competing mm -hmm. themes, uh, and you can see which one is is correct. So uh, do you have anything to, to add to Freytag's triangle there, Nate? Um, not uh, particularly. Uh, we'll get into, I, I, I'll have some stuff to say on it in outlines. <laughs> uh, we're, about to, we're about to get there. Um, I have here right before we get in, well, we're going to start to talk about outlines. So feel free to um, throw in, um, you know, when I just talked about with the triangles, typically called a three act structure. And if you read like Shakespeare's plays, he's kind of got like what's called five act structures, but I find the acts are kind of arbitrarily divided. They feel, it feels like more like I'm dividing this, like I would divide a chapter than something that is fundamental to the structure of the plot of the play. Um, so I don't think that really, uh, dividing it beyond three, uh, you know, you might have some utility for some works, but I don't think that, uh, that really goes anywhere. And I've looked at, um, other descriptions of plot structure, which I actually don't think are very useful because I don't think they tell us very much. So, uh, as much as I like East Asian philosophy, uh, and people like to talk about it, uh, Kisho Tenketsu, which is like a, an East Asian four act structure derived from the telling of poetry. Uh, it's essentially the same thing as Freytag's triangle laid out. Uh, it's just worded a different way, where instead of having a climactic uh, climax and falling action to the resolution, there's a twist or a turn, which they, again, they've taken from poetry, which most poetry has toward the latter end of it, at which um, you get to see the resolution of the events, usually from a different light, but you're still seeing the resolution of events and the consequences, which is what this story is about fundamentally. So that doesn't, you know, bear any difference for me. Um, also the difference between like linear and nonlinear, which just means chronological and non-chronological, which I think is stupid as a name because it's a name that needs another name that doesn't help. We just, we could just call them chronological. And then that's a description of the sequence of events in terms of time but it doesn't deviate from Freytag's triangle at all, right? Because the same fundamental structures will still happen. You still have a set of characters. You still have a conflict with complications. There's still a moment that determined the results and the results still happen. Um, and then the same thing with comedy and tragedy, uh, which after this didn't happen during yesterday's podcast, but afterwards I thought about it. And I do think comedy and tragedy probably belong to genre more than they do to plot structures because the structure is exactly the same the only difference is the uh the theme and the way it impacts the in this case reader but but in terms of structure like how this plot might be structured nothing nothing is different right like maybe the hero has flaws they overcome maybe they have flaws they don't overcome but uh, or obstacles, but but that's not a difference in how the plot is structured. So I wanted to race through that. Now that I've gotten through that, um, we can talk a little bit about outlining, and I think that will tell us about perhaps more useful, um, let's say, plot structures that I think will all fall within Freytag's triangle, uh, the three, the fundamental three act structure. But uh, we'll see if they don't. So. Uh, I'll let you take the floor since I've been rattling on for a while. Uh, Nate, tell me about your, uh, let's say, 
when you're going to write a story and you're you're trying to figure out a plot, how do you begin and how do you get into the the process of outlining that plot? All right. So usually, at least for me, and I am uh, this isn't necessarily how I started or how I would recommend people starting. But um, a big thing for me whenever I am writing a thing is uh, I usually start with central, like a, usually a central character, sometimes two of them, depending on the nature of the conflict that I'm trying to do. And then I uh, establish, uh, if it's a new setting, quote unquote, like uh, if I'm not writing something, so say I'm writing a fantasy story or a science fiction story, I try to lay out uh, like six core themes and influences. And then, but that's more into like uh, world building stuff on the topic of world building. I don't think that like world building in the modern sense, uh, modern sense that people use it is really that useful for storytelling anymore. And uh, unless you're doing some weird experiment, but that's besides the point. Uh, I first I come up, of course, with the characters and themes, but this isn't a world building thing. And then I figure out who's who's going to be the POV character. I and then I tend towards using an outline in which I write. I use uh, so you were talking about three and four act structure structure. So due to the fact that I uh, started writing stories using the what's called the Lester Dent formula which was a uh, pop, uh, uh, pulp formula uh, created by um, pulp writer Lester Dent, which is highly recommended by a uh, pretty notable fantasy author as a be- as a starter beginner's outline. Uh, that, that author is Michael Moorcock, uh, who is famous for a, a, a bunch of fantasy concepts that bled their way into some of your favorite stuff. If you know Warhammer and know Chaos, uh, Chaos was his idea kind of, in some of his stuff. Uh, the idea of, like, cosmic struggle between fundamental forces of the universe. Anyway, he recommends the Lester Dent formula, which is you take your story and you divide it into four major, like, blocks. It's not necessarily four scenes, like, four acts, like you would talk about with uh, Free Text Triangle or Shakespeare or any of that stuff. So, you divide your story into four about even sections, and each of those four sections will have some fun, depending on genre, have some fundamental key points that you want to hit. Of course, the first one is you want to establish how we're introduced to the characters, what's at stake, and all that. You want to introduce that, especially in uh, short story formats, which is mainly what I write and what I rec- and what people recommend in my circles recommend you start doing. So, uh, you would, I apologize for that. I am looking through my notes to make sure I am getting everything right specifically on what is in each act of the thing. You can actually, uh, of course, also look this up independently, but, uh, I apologize. Yeah, that was the Lester... The Lester Dent Pulp Fiction Plot Formula. Um, there's a few websites that have it like printed up. It, he, uh, I think he originally put it in a magazine, but it's become a popular writing tool with like uh, starting out fiction authors. Uh, he also lays out some like more genre specific things that he uh, suggests that you have 
So like, uh, because he, during he, uh, pulp writers during the Great Depression were put under great uh, pressure to write decent stories that'll get picked up by magazines for profit. They they lasered in on the kinds of things that were popular at the time. So some of that might be outdated. Uh, this guy puts an emphasis on uh, exotic locales, uh, strange things for people to be like competing over, like uh, exotic thing, uh, MacGuffins and such. But uh, you don't have to do that for the model to work. The uh, the important thing about the model is it's a basic plot outline that you can fill out like like out of the four things he recommends like for a six thousand word short story about fifteen hundred words a piece and uh, he tells you vaguely what you should put uh, if you look up the model it's he's got like vague points that you're supposed to hit while writing that and. Uh, after you get good at writing short stories in that format, that's when you can start subverting that structure a little bit. But like you said earlier, because plot is so, like... So, like, we're talking about chronology and non-chronology. Mo most stuff you're going to write is going to be, one, chronolo chronological, and stuff is going to linearly happen, right? So, if you're starting to write a plot... There is no reason not to start with the most basic version of what you want for your characters, your world, and your themes. And then if you so choose, when you're outlining especially. So, like, if you're the type of person to plan a story rather than, like, you just write, both are, of course, valid methods, um, you want to be able to visualize how everything's going to flow if you're writing an outline on like a piece of note paper and then you can just choose okay but i want this element this makes sense here etc etc so this allows you to create that kind of timeline of like how you're going to type everything out whenever you but uh you get to see where your plot and character is going to go ahead of time and like a lot of people get, like you were saying, get stuck on plot. But if you're writing out your initial plot or like trying to just test run a care, even if you're not going to publish this particular like vision of the story, it gives you an opportunity to see the mechanics of your characters and themes work in action ahead of time. So you get a, so you feel more comfortable trying to use them in various contexts. Um, yeah, even I've found uh, that to be the case. So while I don't use outlines heavily, if I get stuck or uh, whether at the beginning or in the middle, I'll outline a little bit uh, rough, roughly where I think I want to go just so I have a direction um, before I then jump back into the process of writing. Uh, inevitably, I deviate from that outline very quickly and it becomes entirely different from what I wrote. But it is... Uh, if you, let's say, are lost at sea and you don't have a firm direction, you will just go in circles and never hit land. Whereas if you at least go in a direction, uh, you will start going toward land eventually, <laughs> right? Like yeah. it's, it, yeah, it's, it's bad to just, you know, sputter in circles. Uh, so were you able to find the other uh, three components? Because you mentioned what to me sounded just what I would call in plot 
in relation to plot the exposition according to the Lester Dent uh, okay. model. Yeah, so uh, the first part ends up being like establishing, like you were said, the exposition style things. Although also uh, they recommend uh, because this is pulp uh, a pulp guy, he recommends starting with something exciting and then going into the exposition of explaining what just happened. Or maybe it was an unrelated adventure, and then the character is thrust into another adventure, and that's a that's a popular that that actually became very popular with Ian Fleming, who people know from the James Bond movies, but he started in pulp novels. So, uh, and that's why he does that because of this model, actually. Um, so, first you will have uh, in the first fifteen hundred words exactly. Uh, the first line or near there to as possible, introduce the hero and swat him with a fistful of trouble. He, he's a 20th century, early 20th century guy, so he writes kind of funny. But yeah, hinted a mystery, a menace, a problem to be solved. Uh, the hero pitches in to cope with the troubles, introduce all other characters as quickly as possible and bring them into the action. Uh, because like, so I'm, I'm going to agree with this because like, uh, a lot of people's favorite characters in fiction tend to be the villains a lot of the time. Villains are easy to find fascinating or like, uh, but a lot of people hide them, uh, and there's reasons for this, but a lot of people hide them behind like later in the plot when it would. it's usually good to have try to find a way f for them to be a presence and to communicate with your protagonist in some way, right? Uh, yeah, that's uh, that's what we were just talking about, like being at sea. Like once you introduce the antagonist uh, or the face of the antagonist, or if you're doing like a big bad, and then you've got like the the henchman that's kind of that villain for that story or that novel. Um, it's good to have them present in the both the narrator's mind, but also the protagonist's mind, and therefore the reader's, because it reminds the reader that there is a danger, there's a threat, there is something that is making something important at stake. Uh, and then, like you said, it, you you can do things with an antagonist that you can't do with a protagonist that makes them more interesting, but I don't want to get too into that because that's both about villains and about character. And we're still yes. talking about plot. Yes. So uh, other than... So after the first act, usually uh, usually the first, or in this case, 1,500 words is what he uses, but it's essentially an act. Uh, after the fir uh, first act, he recommends some kind of plot twist uh, that is vague and not super specific, but he recommends something that twists an element to the plot at the end of pretty much every act but the fourth, where things are just pretty even-handedly resolved because of the nature of his storytelling medium. So, uh, the second act is mostly just, like, uh, ver uh, throwing various struggles and conflicts in the path of your protagonist, and them overcoming it. Pretty standard stuff. Up until, uh, some, again, some kind of twist, or usually, perhaps, the villain or antagonistic force, if you will, gaining some kind of upper hand. Uh, the third act is, uh, sorry, these are actually kind of long and I'm trying to summarize them. 
uh, take your time while you while you uh, find the third one i'll comment so so far uh we have something that looks like the exposition where you introduce as many characters as you could manage so that um, we know who the hell this is about we have the inciting incident essentially the start of the conflict um so that essentially lets us know what the story's about and also what is at stake so right away we can start to have reader buy-in through tension um we might even have some extra tension by an exciting hook that comes in the beginning and that all leads into the second part which is essentially what i would call the conflict or the rising action portion of the triangle to i'm relating this back to the triangle to to kind of make it familiar and how I'm, I'm, I'm perceiving it so far and you need complications uh and the reason why you need complications is because if you don't have complications there's no fucking story right like if it's uh you know uh i wanted to save the princess i walked down the street uh rescued her from the troll story's over like there's no it's like the dragon on a piece of paper right like it there there is no um would say ratcheting of the tension and that ratcheting of the tension is produced by those twists those complications of the plot where the protagonist is running into obstacles and having to figure out how to get around them yes so uh by the third act it's expected that you're going to hit your uh, darkest hour so to speak in which uh, it seem, uh, the protagonist, at least, does not seem like they can accomplish the task, and they're trying to scrape at desperate solutions to a problem. And then by the fourth act, uh, they are, of course, figuring out how to resolve that and get out from underneath the thumb of the villain, resolve the issue, and then the consequences of the story are laid out. So yeah, pretty basic stuff and there if you actually read the whole like article the original article there are like more specifics about suggestions to put in there in the body text but i was giving a vague summary of the structure so like it is very like as with most of these it's very reminiscent of the triangle that everybody knows and loves but uh it it it's a good basic outline yeah, it's um, essentially, it's a little more um, user-friendly than the triangle. Like in the darkest hour section, that breaks down what the climax is in a way that I think uh, in Freytag's triangle, it's not described in full, where you have to understand that the climax isn't necessarily, you know, one uh, single event. It is the culmination of a series of events uh, at which the, you've now reached the thing that like the central conflict is at the, is at stake like right now like everything that has led up to it led up led up and then now it's either like this one decision or this one outcome determines all of those things that you've described before um i think when you have like the the four sections there it it makes it more um it connects all the complications of the prior section uh, to that climactic moment, and then the resolution coming down off of that fits with the the, the fourth section there. Um, I want to tie that back in with how, what you mentioned before in terms of how you approach the outline. So we had characters, and then we had um, the themes, and you mentioned themes like multiple themes, and it's 
it's somewhat worth talking about that, but I'm going to refrain because it's a, I'm sure that's a whole conversation in and of itself. And you mentioned yeah. also generally having the, the conflict. And then once we have these components, um, the Lester, is Lester Dent, am I pronouncing that right? Yes. Uh, L-E-S-T-E-R-D-E-N-T. Uh, there's a website that uh, has it has the original article in full called Dirty 30s because it is a uh, a, f- a focus on um, 1930s pulp Americana and stuff, but they have it up on there. And I do so recommend that... reading it in full because I am mostly summarizing each of these blocks for each of the four acts. And then there's some more genre-specific stuff which you can avoid or use at your leisure because, like, I, I am an advocate for a kind of return to that form of storytelling, but I don't know that's not for everybody. <laughs> uh, yeah, genre, Delinda asked. Um, <laughs> no, I'm kidding. It is all oh, sort of. But, okay, so we've got that, that Lester Dent structure. Um, and I guess my question therein is when you start to outline specific scenes right because uh uh this is a this is something that that or the way that i talk about it it's related to like the show don't tell rule which i won't get too much into because that's for the rules discussion but uh, i actually think the show don't tell rule is not very well worded I, i understand what it means but it's really summary versus scene what do you summarize because it's not relevant to the plot it just is connective tissue to get us from scene to scene to scene and what do you enter into scene in which you get to um, actually describe in detail in the moment of the storytelling. Uh, Now, those scenes, um, particularly because of the influence of cinema, are often called story beats, Um, though often when I hear story beat, um, I think amateur. (laughs) That's very judgmental (laughs) of me, but no, I I hate that Um, because it, they're not, they're not, beats because like a beat is an individual note now you can relate those notes to each other but if we remember our definition of plot at the beginning this is a kind of causal chain like these things are are interrelated and so they're not singular they shouldn't at least be singular beats they need to be connective um you know uh, what was it uh, i might have brought this up last time uh, someone mentioned the south park writers uh they have they because they call it a because writing structure as opposed to a and then writing structure uh now i don't even think those are warranted to be called structures but it is good advice nonetheless things should be happening because other things happened not just because and then this happened because then now we've divorced we've divorced the plot from let's say uh almost like a a level of verisimilitude to reality in terms of cause and effect which is going to make it feel contrived like it's been stitched together and you can see it and the reason i'm bringing all that up is because i am curious um what you do when you outline uh to avoid having individual disconnected story beats and instead to have interconnected uh let's say causally related scenes within let's say in this case the lester dent structure that takes those characters on a journey that communicates the themes that you're you're trying to communicate right 
So, uh, like, like we were saying that we'll avoid getting into theme exactly, but uh, uh, the way that you would go about, um, I well, that, that that was an unexpected question, so I'd have I have to think about this one. Um, well, if you want, I can give um, I could go into my somewhat non-outlining method, and that might give you some ideas about how you approach this. Because essentially, what I just asked you is what I jump into right away. So would that be all right? I can go ahead. Oh, oh, absolutely. Go ahead. Okay. So um, essentially, uh, online, I've seen what Nate described as being the planning or planner method. Um, And I've seen what I do described as the organic or pantser, like writing off the seat of your pants method. Um, And it depends on what kind of person you are. Uh, I think it has to do something with the relationship between probably traits, openness, and conscientiousness, but we won't get into that as to why someone might do this. Um, But my method, actually, um, the the beginning is usually also with characters. I I typically write very character-driven works. Um, And when I imagine... um, the character or when the, the, the character comes about, usually through some singular idea or object that piques my interest, I go for some stupid long run. And then while I'm running, uh, all of a sudden, these associate, associations and connotations generate until they, they form a person. And whenever you have a real fleshed out individual, that person is always going to have problems right and maybe i'm just uh, maybe my method is really a form of like uh, psychological projection where i'm trying to like find some problem that i have that i haven't figured out and then i'm going through it like i'm doing a pseudo dream analysis uh which i might actually believe because i'm a diehard union but that's not important the important part is that the character is born and out of the, the character is born a conflict now that seems pretty similar to the method that you had just described. Uh, The difference is I don't come up with the themes at that point or even theme. Um, And when I use the word theme, I separate it from motif um, specifically. So a motif is like a common occurrence thing, object, idea, uh, a recurring symbol by itself. Um, Whereas for me, and uh, I stole this from, I believe I stole it from Aristotle, actually. Theme is thesis, right? Thesis is the argument. It's the claim that something is true in the world. Like if X plus Y equals Z type of deal. Um, it's a form of, uh, let's say, narrative symbolic logic is a way you could think about theme in, in the sense that I use it. And so I've got this character and they've got this con I've got the conflict. Now the character it has to exist within some type of setting. Uh, and the the character existing within that setting uh, produces well, it produces the setting. And so the exposition uh, and the conflict and the, the setting, everything, they all arise out of that. And the inciting incident uh, fundamentally is let's say, the imagined moment at which something would be done about it, right? Because I, my method is, how does this character solve his or her problems? That's really the question. Um, and 
once that initiates, that produces the rising action, right? So they've got this problem. Um, they're at a point where they are going to do something about it, either because an external influence comes out and makes them have to start, or they generate that of their own free accord. Whatever it is, that's where the story begins. And the theme is generated out of how I figure out that they resolve the conflict. And this is quite key for me. I don't know how the protagonists are going to solve their problems. I just know what, what the problem is. Sometimes I don't even know why the protagonist has that particular issue if the protagonist, him or herself, does not know. And through the process of writing the story, um, and the let's say, as the setting generates, more characters generate to populate that setting as a result of the character existing within it. And uh, I'm sitting there writing, struggling to figure out how do I solve this problem? And the, and the reason why the story generates out of it is because I actually don't know how to solve the problem. That's, that's vital for me. If I know how to solve the problem, I can't write a story about it. Because then I could, I, it would just become a kind of trite, propagandistic, um, you know, contrived, uh, you know, rehashed old hat. Uh, it would not have, I wouldn't be interested in writing it. And I don't think anybody would be interested. Well, I shouldn't say anybody. Um, I don't think readers who I would respect would be interested in reading it. Let's say that. I'll, I'll get kind of Nietzschean about it. Um, but yeah, so I, I, I struggle and struggle and struggle. Uh, as I can, to discover the um, discover the solution, or, or and sometimes if you know I can't find one, uh, it ends up being a tragedy, right? Like where the protagonist cannot or does not figure out how to overcome their flaws, their problems, uh, and it resolves in kind of this kind of sadness, and all we get out of it is a catharsis. Um, now it ends up producing the same structure as Freytag's triangle, but it is produced out of this kind of free-flowing um, attempt to discover the, let's say, discover the actions taken at the climactic moment and uh, through all the complications leading up to that. And now I've, I've jabber, jabbered on uh, quite a bit, um, but that's how, I, that's how I avoid that plot beat problem. So now I'm going to throw the question back to you. I was going to mention, have you, uh, have you considered doing a episode on writing as self-improvement? Yes. Um, I think <laughs> the, well, I think the character episode very well may be that because, um, someone had, I think, uh, it was Ian Kirkpatrick, uh, shout out, I guess you get a free one, um, had asked a question, some question about self-inserts, uh, at some point I can't remember what it was, um. I think it's like, well, why write them? And actually, I think there is a use in writing a self-insert character if you are willing to give your own problems to that character and then struggle to solve them rather than just allow them to solve them by uh, either miracle or deus ex machina, right? Because that's essentially, uh, when you see the power fantasy that's very distasteful, the character faces problems that really shouldn't be problems for that character because the character has already self-improved enough to overcome them. Whereas I think a real self-insert has problems that, you know, oneself has failed uh, to overcome. And I've said this uh, 
out loud or not out loud in text on a number of forums. So I have a, a series of short stories where I took what's essentially like a union shadow projection of myself. Um, and I call the, the series discourses where I have this character Kashim, who's essentially like a, it's like a me. If I was like a bardic for a, a philosopher, Conan type character, uh, except less buff and, and more articulate. Uh, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> I, I give Kashim my own flaws and my own problems and uh, I my own mistakes that I know that I make, right? Like, a, a, like I have a, let's say, at times too short of temper. Uh, I become impatient. Uh, I become more aggressive than is wise. Uh, I, I become, I succumb to a desire to, to punish. Sometimes I get myself in over my head. Um, so I, like I overestimate my ability to, um, to win out a, a victory in the day. And oftentimes when I get through, uh, something that's a big hardship, it's because of luck. Right. And, uh, I find when I write those stories, it doesn't feel so much like the typical self insert character that everyone hates. I'll relate this to, uh, Ran I think Randolph Carter, I think is his name in uh, the dream quest for unknown Kadoth. Yeah, Lovecraft's uh, self-insert. Yeah, but, it, it, you know, he's not insufferable, right? Because the whole time he's kind of, you know, weak and helpless like Lovecraft yeah. is. And it was a projection get... of Lovecraft's own, yeah, anxieties about himself and such rather than like some idealized version of himself. Uh, yeah, and, and even when he uh, kind of, hub uh, hubris is the wrong word, but he overcomes Nerolethotep at the end of the story by discovering that the golden city was exactly where he was the whole time. Like even that's kind of sufferable, right? Like, okay, Lovecraft, you're the only one to beat the elder God or the, uh, the old one. I can't remember what Nerolethotep is specifically. He's, uh, he's, he's some, uh, I, the, the cosmology thing gets all muddled because of August Derelith and, uh, all of the, the the people who brought the weird tales guys back out of uh the ether in like the 60s so uh lovecraft didn't worry so much about the labels so it doesn't matter yeah well anyway uh, that's at least sufferable right because yeah that is probably the the solution lovecraft needed where i'm sure i know that he felt insecure about himself he felt like he wasn't very like good enough. He wasn't man enough. He, the, he, you know, was an agoraphobe who uh, was devoured by his mother. Right. And so he had all kinds of insecurities and that's exactly the lesson that he would have needed to learn, which is like, no, you have to have some fucking self-confidence and get out of your fucking house. Like, just don't stop thinking that what you need is somewhere else outside of yourself. Um, so anyway, that's a deviation. How do you handle the plot beat thing? Um, for me, um, whenever, when I, I actually have come, uh, to realize over the years of like hobbyist writing that, uh, I'm not a super big planning guy because actually I just write, uh, like vague outlines of what I think should happen. And then I put, I try to put myself in the mindsets of my characters and point uh, and and ask myself how are they what would they do in this situation where would they go who would they engage with uh how would they attempt to solve this problem and such and um i do i do do more planning for like things like intrigue heavy plots 
but that's that's a whole different method that I didn't want to get into in here. <laughs> but we can still do it because I guess we have some time left. But but yeah, as far as like plot beats, like I have a thing that I want the characters to confront. I put them in the position in my while I'm like typing out whatever I'm working on. And then I just try to let it naturally occur to them. I suppose. I mean, I guess I do fall into story beat sometimes in regards to, like, I think to myself, oh, here's a bunch of, like, set pieces and nodes, I guess? Because it's not that natural. Because when planning, sometimes maybe I'm not that skilled, but I tend to, f uh, tend to, uh, Think of it in terms of like set pieces, I guess. Do you ever run into an issue where you have trouble getting to one of those particular set pieces, or do you just cast it aside if that happens? If if it if I am writing the the thing, and it feels like that that should like if it feels like the writing the direction I want to take it in is contrary to the outline, I will throw out parts of the outline and then reconsider the trajectory from there. I will stop writing for a while, reconsider what this means for like the structure of the story, and then replace those components that are no longer valid. Sometimes, uh, excuse me, I apologize. Uh, I will... I will, uh... Reevaluate your initial re conceptions. Yeah, reevaluate re the that. That's good. Uh, I'll reevaluate the initial conceptions of what the story is and move on from there. But uh, yes. So I don't. I will use the the plot outlines for direction, but I don't allow myself to be married to the outlines. If that makes sense, I don't want them to shackle the interactions and where my free-flowing mind goes to whenever it's actually time to stop planning, start writing sort of thing. And like uh, I had said earlier that uh, I was generally anti-world building, I guess. At least like pre-planned world building. And I guess it kind of feeds into that. Uh, I used to be more pro those things, but now I'm more... Uh, vague outline and freewheeling development <laughs> okay so nathan what you're so what you're saying is i'm gonna put on my kathy newman hat so what you're saying <laughs> is that um outlining is a useful step but fundamentally there has to be a shift from a planned model to an unplanned organic model and when push comes to shove, um, the organic model uh, essentially needs to take higher priority um, insofar as, let's assume you're not running yourself uh, like into a wall or off a bridge, because I've seen people do that too. So like, let's not, yes. let's not uh, say, too, say too much. Um, I wanted to talk while we still have some time about uh, both plot devices and then subversion which i think is closely related to plot devices now i mentioned earlier i kind of hate the term plot devices and the reason why i don't like them is because it reduces down the let's say event within a plot 
to a, a mere prescripted, um, let's say, well, as it describes, device. Um, now, some things, like maybe I'm willing to call them plot devices, like Deus es Machina. I think even hell, even the name, it got out of the machine, right? I know that comes from the cranes they used to use in late Greek theater that um, Nietzsche said was trash, and he's right, it's trash. But uh, <laughs> the point is that you know, you know, something like a Deus Ex Machina, everyone hates it because it's so obviously fake and contrived. It 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 doesn't solve that plot beat problem that you just described, how you solve, which is very similar to how I solve it. And so, therefore, you know, we can call that a device. Um, but I, you know, I never think in terms of I'm going to put in, let's say, a MacGuffin or um, like never directly, oh, this is a this is a red herring for the sake of the plot or even, um, even Chekhov's gun. Now, oftentimes I might obey the rule of Chekhov's gun because I have something to use and I want to make use of it. But that's not because Chekhov's gun says, right? And maybe I'm getting to a bit of a conversation about rules. But do you think, um, do you use plot devices in your uh, thinking about how you want to outline your plot or while you're actually writing the scenes? I will sometimes use plot devices, but usually I don't try to consciously think of them as such because it leads to that artificiality. I'll often like just think of a um so I'll think of a quote unquote cool thing, right? And I'll try to work it into a thing where it fits. So if it just so happens to be a MacGuffin or a Chekhov's gun sort of situation, then it is what it is, but that isn't something I try to set out to do. Because I used to do more stuff like that, because, like, I, I think, I'll, I'll call this TV Tropes Brain, because there is a website that is very rather popular called uh, TV Tropes that try to boil down all elements of literature and fiction and TV shows, whatever, into these little bites and these articles in which they analyze the tropes, and pretty much everything can be seen as a trope. And it makes all storytelling look like Lego bricks. And I think that's a very... It's not a good way to view fiction when you're creating it, I suppose. No, so... Um... Uh, you'll be able to see this if you if you listen to the podcast last time we talked about tropes in regard to genre, and I guess you could talk about tropes in regard to plot. But I made an argument that uh, that I didn't word it this way, but I'll word it this way with you. Tropes are sort of like the word queer, right? So <laughs> what does that mean, right? So the uh, the postmodern definition of a queer is an identity without an essence, which is um, to me, who's I, I refer to myself commonly as a uh, right wing postmodernist. I think that there is a reality, that there is an essential, if you will, like uh, what we might call the Tao. And when we have a term, uh, what we're trying to do is encapsulate our relationship with that Tao, with that is, which is, right? Uh, I know that C.S. Lewis uses that term too, and I haven't read any real C.S. Lewis, so that's not where I'm getting that from. I'm getting it from Taoism. doesn't matter. The point is that um, the word trope I think doesn't refer to anything. And here's why. You could also compare it to civil rights, by the way, in the same exact, and it follows the exact same pattern. So 
what I what I, I said to Brad was like, okay, a thing is a trope. Um, let's say if it's commonly used within a particular context, but then you have to ask if I take that trope outside of that context, let's say I use the example of uh, English and French. So imagine there's not a whole lot of cultural uh, cross-pollination, like there is a modernity. And so the French have their tropes and the English have their tropes. And if I take a trope out of England to France, it suddenly isn't a trope. And what if you're in England and you don't know it's a trope? Is it a trope to you? Or if you're the first person to implement a thing that would become a trope, is it not a trope, but then becomes a trope? And if it falls out of favor and people forget it, does it now? is it now not a trope anymore? Right. And so what we see here is that the concept of trope is entirely contingent uh, upon the time and place. And so it's actually it has no I would argue it has no actual essence, like it's referring to those that set of contingencies, but it's not referring to a thing in and of itself. And we compared that to archetypes. And why is archetype different? Well, archetypes are universal and timeless. Right. So um, in terms of like if we're talking about human beings, it doesn't matter when or where the archetypes always make sense. And it, it like literally they're literally timeless. Um, Joseph Campbell has done vast research. OK, so how does that relate to plot devices? I think. Perhaps and you can tell me if this is wrong. I think that plot devices um, also are essentially unless we're using that word to critique someone's bad writing i think that they very well may be um it's a essence less essence less uh concepts right like they're they're not actually referring to um a thing it's like an attempt to constantly need to subcategorize and therefore you end up with endless versions of them and some of them are not recognizable across each other. It's like this vague general term that has no real meaning. And if you make yourself try to fit into it, the, the result is that you're just copying individual instances rather than touching on the essence of the thing with which one's uh, unique expression will come through. And I'll throw in one more comparison. It's sort of like the idea that uh, a punch is a punch, right? Uh, but actually, to each individual, a punch is something slightly different. Now, the essence of punching is the same across punches, but the individual technique involved is very technical and specific and has a different, perhaps, look and feel to it. Uh, but when you do it correctly in accord with your situation, with who you are, your particular style, the style that you're fighting up against, uh, you know, the punch returns to being just a punch and is effective and is appreciable, right? And I think the same thing is true with plot devices uh, as, you can almost think of plot devices as tropes, right? Uh, the idea that yes. if you do it right, it looks natural to you and you can tell that it shares the essence of something with other things other people have done, but it's not the same thing. It's a, I don't I don't know if I went too far in a field there. You can tell me what you think of that. No, I I I I'm in agreement. I think uh, whenever I went into the discussion about tropes, I think that they like the idea of tropes as conceived by like well as understood by 
people on the internet who talk about writing things or analyzing writing. And uh, plot devices are very interlinked. And I think it's like an, uh, a, an outcome of over... An, uh, it's a result of over-analysis. So, like, it's okay to use those as an anal- analysis. Like, it's pattern recognition. So, like, we have the word Chekhov's gun because somebody recognized a pattern in the works of, uh, what is it, Anton Chekhov, that he liked to have a thing that ended up being important in a fundamental way later, very early on the story. Like, did he consciously think of that as a plot device, or was that just, some, like, an expression of his theming, right? So, like, think of it in terms of, uh... I wish I knew an example off the top of my head. I know very little about Anton Chekhov. <laughs> I know, I know, I know peasants. I know peasants. That's about it. But uh... no, it's it's fine. I think I can help you. So let's like if we think of Chekhov's gun, and we think of just good story writing, right? So as you're, for those of you who are unfamiliar, who might might not actually be authors, uh, or if you're very very new, uh, there that question of scene versus summary comes in, and when you have something that arrives in a scene, it's relevant to the central conflict and everything else essentially either doesn't get mentioned or gets mentioned in in only base necessity, right? So the gun uh, and the Chekhov's gun, uh, what we'd call a trope or a plot device, essentially all that is is the identification that, oh, wait a minute, things that get mentioned in scene are relevant so they're not just going to be uh, arbitrary and uh, useless backdrop pieces. So I think it's it's like a consequence of recognizing good writing because bad writing would be cluttered with tons of Chekhov's guns that never go off, right? They would just they would and and then you would would say lose the tension of the scene because it would be just filled and filled with irrelevant garble. So. You know what we're seeing there is just the consequence of someone who knows what to and what not to describe, and so therefore the things that get described they go off later. Yes, you don't spend great length describing a gun and not have that gun be used in the story at some point. <laughs> yeah, because otherwise it's like you wasted the reader's time, and that's what the, that's what it feels like, right? The reader will be like, "Why did you bother?" describing this character in great, great detail when they, they didn't affect anything and they never came back, right? Like I've heard people say that with badly written books. Um, yeah. So we only have a few, a few minutes left. I don't want to go too much over. There's two different places we could go from here. Uh, we could talk about subversion uh, in regard to the fact that we just kind of destroyed the concept of plot devices in a sense. Um, or we could go in and talk about um, what we think are identifiable plot structures, or perhaps I should say substructures, um, in regard to the the structures that we described, whether it be the triangle or um, lesser dense, you know, four sections. Uh, either way, we we might be able to make some subcategories. Where do you want to go, Nate? Subversion or sub substructures? I'm interested in hearing what you have to say on subversion, because. Uh... You being a uh, archetypes guy, I, I want to hear this. Yeah, so 
I don't actively think of subversion in my writing, but I do think that it comes up. And the reason why it comes up uh, for me specifically is because when I approach these problems, I inevitably, um, let's say, project some aspect of my own psyche or conflict or internal conflict that I don't know how to resolve. Now, I'm going to get a bit union about this because I don't know how else to describe it. So hopefully this is intelligible. So in union uh, psychoanalytics, there's this concept called the shadow. And what the shadow is, is the part of the uh, unconscious that is personal to you through which all of your instincts make themselves manifest. You can think of it like uh, a gateway or a portal that between you and your animal self, right? So you've got your rational self, that's your ego, you have your unconscious, that's all of your, basically all of the rest of you. So it's like the frontal neocortex versus everything else. Um, and when I'm trying to solve this problem, the problem is inevitably in the shadow. Okay, so what does that mean? It means that the answer is within my possibility of knowing. It might even be within my realm of experience, but I am refusing, or rather refusing is wrong because refusing makes it sound like a conscious choice. It's more like it is painful for me to recognize the facts that I am privy to that are in the shadows. So they're, they're in my brain somewhere, they're in memory, they're in my experience, but I'm not paying attention to them because it hurts, right? Just like if you broke your arm, after you break your arm, you only try to move it like a couple times before instinctively you just stop and you, you keep it in that position because if you go to move it, it hurts, right? And so you just don't do it anymore. Well, the shadow is basically that with uh, psychic, psychic phenomenon. Well, how does that relate to story writing, right? So essentially what I'm trying to do is to pull out solutions from the shadow and Part of the way that works in psychoanalytics is you have to integrate those uncomfortable truths. And those uncomfortable truths are typically things that defy our normal sense of morality or they defy our established sense of how things work in the world. And that's what makes them uncomfortable, right? Because if they were, you know, easily assimilable and predictable, they would be part of the what you would call the ego consciousness. And so when I have a character has a conflict, particularly, this is very particularly true with internal conflicts, so though you can do this symbolically with, uh, you know, protagonists and antagonists against one another, um, such as like uh, Conti and King Ugir, right? I'll use one of my own stories from One Smoke Broken. Uh, the evil King Ugir is essentially the spirit of the tyrant, uh, and his spirit is in part in this sword that Conti uh, finds, uh, well, he doesn't really find it, finds him down deep in a cave, right? So we have the king under the mountain. And uh, Conti has to, when he, he gets hold of the sword and the sword threatens to possess him over time, and he essentially is encountering the tyrannical king. And archetypally speaking, he kind of has to uh, let's say, resurrect his father from the underworld, right? Bring this evil, tyrannical king into alignment um, with the modern day. And they might ask, well, how, how do you subvert that, right, without breaking the archetype? And I would say, I don't need to break the archetype to subvert it. What happens is the king is actually fucking right a lot. 
and Conti himself has to confront the fact that the king is correct on a number of things that he doesn't want the king to be correct about, one issue of which is slavery in regard to the setting, um, in which the fairies that exist on the island, um, they cannot very, they can't, basically can't peacefully and equally coexist with the human beings due to their natural tendencies. They, they, basically, it's like predator and prey, right? Like, literally, that's like their natural uh, situation. And so, like, maybe Ugir's solution just to kill them all is wrong, but Conti ends up taking a bunch of prisoner and essentially keeping them as prisoners slash slaves. And when confronted about this, he's like, look, I don't have a better fucking solution. Like the the king is right. If I just let them go, they'll just burn down some more houses and murder some more people. <laughs> right? Like this isn't gonna work. Um, and so that part of that confrontation is to re recognize, like, okay, there are intractable conflicts that have no perfect solutions. And I don't care how much of the hero you are, that part of the the king actually isn't in the underworld. And you have to it, it's it's instead of giving just giving vision to the king like Horus taking his eye and giving it to um, Osiris, it's Horus now receiving an eye from Osiris, and that's uh, that was a very long winded way to say it, but that's essentially how I approach subversion from um, from an an archetypal perspective. Uh, does that still sound like subversion? I don't know if I kind of broke the idea of subversion or not. Yeah, I, I I think that's actually a very interesting way to handle subversion, because normally whenever I think of, dis, of subversion, I think deconstruction, which obviously uh, has a bit become a bit of a more negative term nowadays in a lot of circles, because uh, we've led to deconstruction being an excuse to just make everything like not fun and miserable, when I think that the way you were going about it, in which you were just like, flipping the archetypes on their head to explore a different perspective, like you were using the example of Horus and stuff. I think that uh, I think that is deeply interesting, and I think uh, if there is a way to do plot subversion, that is probably the way to go. Take things that exist, but give them a twist in a way that's still compelling to, like, the... Uh, the eternal human spirit, because that's why archetypes uh, are uh, good, right? They're they're timeless. So, no, nah, yes, I'm I'm in agreement with how you do things. That is, a, uh, I did. I probably could not have uh, articulated it as eloquently as you managed, because uh, that was that was a pretty good delivery. But it it, it kind of matches my own thoughts on subversion versus uh, so like good subversion doesn't have to be deconstruction. And yeah, uh, oh, go ahead. It's the difference uh, between essentially the uh, what I've, I've started calling right wing and left wing postmodernism. So, uh, which also is deconstructionism, if you didn't know that out there. Um, so, uh, I, I like this quote from Nietzsche like, you know, like everything is interpretation. That can mean one of two things. You could take that to mean that everything is mere subjectivity or what you could take it to mean is that all of that you experience is interpretation and subjectivity 
but there is an but what you're interpreting in your subjective experience is of an objective fact and so your attitude determines how you experience an objective fact happening to you and the acknowledgement of that objective fact is i think where that subversion comes from so what i'm doing there is saying here's a conflict and instead of just deconstructing the conflict i'm uh i'm deconstructing the conflict finding what makes it valid and then and then reconstructing it in a new light to say like look this conflict isn't merely a problem it's both a problem and something that you have to accept as partly being here no matter what your solution is like either you're going to have this problem or you're going to have another problem and decide motherfucker like what are you going to do and that that yeah that that's how i i think it it doesn't just take it apart it takes it apart and puts it back together uh upside down yes uh i uh that i am i've had difficulty communicating what i mean by uh reconstruction before because i am uh i think the next phase in at least fiction like uh pop fiction writing, you know, consumer fiction writing, is trying to find interesting ways to reconstruct uh, deconstructed genres, or you can call them genres, pl- uh, uh, story, I don't, I don't have a good word for it right now, but uh, archetypes and themes and all of that fun stuff. Um, but that that's certainly giving me ideas and things to think on, and I think that this was a worthwhile uh, tangent <laughs> in regards I don't know to. If I call it a tangent, uh, Nate. How are you on time? Yeah, do you need to? Do you need? To, uh, do you have a hard out? Uh, e- not. Uh, I do have to get some stuff set up for for uh, my home office work environment soon, but. Uh, all right. Well, I won't. I won't hold you up. Uh, this was definitely a really great conversation. Um, really quickly, I'll throw out another shill. If you enjoyed this conversation, remember you can take part as well. Um, find some way to get into contact with me. You can do that at my website, by the way, wildiolit.com, uh, where you can find my work. Uh, if you that little bit of subversion interested you, why not try reading my novel? Wand Smoke Broken. I've got a set of short stories that I'm about to release as well. So you want to read the novel before you jump into those. You'll enjoy them a little bit more. Uh, Also, if you're an author well-established, well, not well-established, but if you're starting out, you've got manuscripts that you you want to polish up or you want to just improve your skill, check out my editing service, uh, the Wild Isle Style Guide, um, where I can help you learn to articulate yourself as uh, smoothly and silkily as I did articulate subversion just now. Um, And yeah, you can become, you know, uh, an author who both has a unique voice that matches modernity, but also harkens back into the the history of fiction um, so that we don't all just sound like incestuous minimalists. Uh, I took that from Nate, by the way. He came up with the idea of modern writing being incestuous and disgusting and terrible and despicable and worth spitting on. (laughs) Uh, All right, Nate, is there anything, uh, anything you want to throw out there? Um... Read more old stuff that nobody cares about.
find stuff that people haven't already copied to death and explore that stuff. That is that is something I will advocate. I to random people. History. Yes. Yes. So explore that to avoid the incestuous nature of writing, you must find the paths that were not taken in older writing. That's right, folks. Do not always travel the road most followed. Yes. All right, guys. Thank you for listening. Uh, and uh, thank you, Nate. Uh, and I will see you next time.